found us. <clears throat> Pardon me. Apparently, I opened the wrong, uh, the wrong Facebook page for the live. It should be up and running now on Facebook Live. So if you're on Zoom and someone's asking you, where is everyone, let them know. It's good to go on Facebook. <clears throat> Excuse me. For those of you face-to-face, um, -face, good morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today. Um, so I'll let you start flipping over there as we um, get ourselves going. And I will begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the ability to um, get together virtually. Thank you for the opportunity to hear your word preached. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather together afterwards for Sunday school. And Lord, I pray we would be able to see each other face to face soon. I pray, Lord, you would help us to understand your word and see you more clearly in truth today. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So before we dig into Luke 12, starting in verse 49, um, we'll just give, give you a, a second here to get yourselves acclimated. <clears throat> I know if, if we're gathered as a church, it's hard to get distracted or fall asleep with me because I could show up right on you at any moment. Um, I've never been known for my, my quietness or my lack of movement. Um, but through a screen, you guys have things like volume control. You can, um, you can be about doing some things like getting a new cup of coffee or, or looking out the window at that bird. And uh, screens are harder to stay focused on. And one of the, the interesting things to watch is, I think we're in week 11 or 12 um, of not gathering face-to-face -face as, as churches in Pennsylvania. And one of the things I was hearing chatter about in pastor groups, and, and I've seen it on our end, is the first week there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new people that, that jump in on the novelty of, oh, church online, let's check this out. And, and literally, the numbers that would blow your mind. Well, then you watch this slow progression down. And here's one of the things that I've been noticing is what, what, mo what some pastors are doing is try to improve their production quality. Because you know, you're just staring at one guy poorly lit on a screen. Um, my, my technology is my Facebook. Uh, I'm sorry, my phone. And it's hard to stay focused. And, and I can appreciate that. And what, what you're seeing is even people in local bodies are either watching on a delay at a more convenient time for them, as opposed to having to get up, get dressed, and come in, or they're just not engaging, not watching anymore. So here's what I want to help you out with today. I, I want to let you know it's, it's okay, it's easy to be distracted, and there's benefit to being distracted because we could be aware of it and fight against it. Meaning, you know, church can't just really walk out so easily and get a second or third cup of coffee. You can do it, you're not locked in, but you got people watching you. Fight against it. Um, you know, you, you got a, a bathroom to clean and you want to listen to the sermon while you clean the bathroom, maybe put the bathroom off half an hour. I'll be quick. Uh, and I'll help you out because you don't have a bulletin. Here's your sermon outline. We're going to go with three points today in, in Luke 12, 49 to 53. The first point is why Jesus came. The second point, you ready? So we got why, why Jesus came. The second point we're going to look at is what he did. And the third point is what it matters. So let's look at our text and unpack it. It's a marvelous text. It's a timely text. And if we understand it properly as God's people, it's an encouraging text. 
Verse 49 of Luke 12, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. And there will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, when I look at my calendar, I realize we're approaching that most distant dot on the map of Christmas, meaning we're getting close to six months from and six months to Christmas. And, and because that's the case, I can speak freely about Christmas for a minute. When, when people think Christmas, they think peace. You know, li little baby Jesus came in peace to bring peace. And, and you got Luke, what is it, 2.14, um, peace on earth, right? You got Isaiah 9.6, Jesus is the prince of peace. Psalm 72 talks about when Messiah comes, he will come and bring peace. Acts 10.36 talks about the gospel being good news of peace. Isn't Jesus all about peace? Well, I don't know, because right here in verse 51, he says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? And then he says, no, I tell you, but rather division. So realize we're, we're in the middle of a single narrative, Luke 12, 1 to Luke 13, 9. And Jesus is talking to his disciples and to a crowd, secondarily, primarily, about how Jesus's kingdom people will live, how they will live so that they inherit the kingdom. Let me repeat this carefully. This is not how Jesus's people live to be saved. This is how saved people live to demonstrate for the glory of God that they are saved as a new creation with new desires from a new heart. And so we've seen, starting in 12.1, Jesus' people will turn from false teaching. We see Jesus' people will stop fearing man and start fearing God, confessing Christ before men and listening to the Holy Spirit, meaning submitting to the Word of God. Jesus' people will stop loving material things. They will pursue God's kingdom, trusting in God's provision, and they will do this with urgency because they know that Jesus will come soon. And you think, well, pastor, you just did five sermons in 30 seconds. Yes, I did, but that would be no fun if we went that fast. Amen? I assume everyone shouts robustly, amen, preach long, pastor, preach long. That's what I'm hearing. I'm joking, sort of. So with all that being said, Jesus is talking about how his people will live in verse 49. He says, I have come to cast fire on the earth. Now, now listen to this a minute. Jump back to 51 for a second. Some of you maybe are college football fans, and there's a guy in college football named Lee Corso. And on game day, they, they have a show on ESPN where they pick teams. And, and Lee Corso will listen to people pick teams, and they'll have this line if he disagrees. He'll say, not so fast. And what Jesus is saying to the people, to the crowds, the Jews expected the Messiah to come with peace. And they're not wrong, but they don't have the whole story. So they're expecting if he's Messiah, he'll come in peace, he'll kick the Romans out, he'll establish an earthly kingdom. And Jesus says, not so fast. 
He says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Well, let, let's back this up now to 49. I came, it says, to cast fire on earth. If you think about it, if you read your Bible closely, that phrase, I came to, Jesus uses that a lot. John 10, 10, he said, I came to give life abundantly. John 12, 46, I came as light to the world. Matthew 5, 17, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Luke 19, 10, I came to seek and save that which is lost. Well, John 9, 39, we'll get there in a minute. For judgment, I have come. I came, is Jesus' expression, to show what he is doing, what the point is in his and through his earthly ministry. So here's why Jesus came. Yeah, answer that question. Why did Jesus come? It's not an easy answer. It's complex. One of the reasons he came is to cast fire on the earth. What does that mean? Well, fire is judgment. And the gospel, in fact, is that we're saved from God's judgment. Now, I'm going to read you a quote from a guy named Charles Spurgeon. We see God willing to forgive, but not willing to allow his law to be dishonored. And therefore, giving up his only begotten son to die a death of pain and ignominy, in order that the penalty for a broken law might be rendered to justice, and yet mercy displayed to rebels. I want you to think about that for a minute. Jesus came, the purpose of his coming is to cast fire on the earth. Or as John says it in John 9.39, as Jesus says in John 9.39, for judgment I have come. He's come to bring a fire of judgment. And God is not willing to allow his law to be transgressed or his honor sullied. And because of that, all people will deal with God's judgment. Now listen to this. It's a side note that's not such a side note. Do you ever struggle to forgive anybody? You want to know why? Because you neglect or don't understand God's judgment. When someone wrongs us, we want right. And partly because that's what God made us for. Someone harms you horribly, we often struggle to forgive them because we forget that God promises vengeance is his. Now listen closely, you don't cheer for their destruction. In a world where there's no justice, there is just pointlessness and hopelessness. But in a world where there is judgment and justice, there's no hope for anyone. Why do I say that? Because if God is truly just, and God is who he says he is, then there is justice, and every wrong will be made right. Everyone who has done something wrong, from, from the seven-year-old kid who smacked his sibling for no reason whatsoever, he will take God's judgment, and justice will be carried out upon him for that smack, that little smack. And for the person who kills in cold blood, there will be justice and judgment, even if, even if the legal system doesn't bring it to bear, the Lord himself will. That is his promise. Now, he establishes civil government to, to, to be a rod, if we go back to, to Romans, for example. But here's my point. In a world where we assume there's no justice or judgment, there's pointlessness and hopelessness, 
But in a world where we understand there is justice and judgment, hang on to this, this is scary now, we have no hope because we all stand condemned. We have all sinned against God. We will all pay the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death, not just physical death, but eternal death in hell. But in a world of the gospel where there is both justice and forgiveness, now we have hope and joy. And what Jesus is saying is, I didn't just come to crack the whip of justice, because if I came to crack the whip of justice, y'all would be dead. I will crack the whip of justice, but before I crack the whip of justice, I'm offering you forgiveness. Now stick with me to the end, and we'll tie this up, and we'll pick up this conversation in Sunday school. But notice, Jesus came to cast fire on the earth, and then he says, and would that it were already kindled. So he came to light fire, but the fire ain't lit yet. And what's going to light the fire? What's the kindling? The kindling is the death of Christ on the cross. And he says right here, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What does baptism mean? He has something to be immersed into. And what he has to be immersed into is pain, suffering, death, scorn, but most of all, judgment and wrath. The judgment of God and the wrath of God poured upon him. And, and perhaps if you flipped over to Nahum 1.6, and you might need 20 minutes to get there, right? Unless you got tabs, you know you ain't finding Nahum that fast. Come on, people, be honest. You may be behind the screen, but you're either laughing or you're in the table of contents. And if you got there, you would read it in verse 6 of chapter 1 says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Who can stand before that fire of God's justice and wrath? Well, Jesus would and Jesus could. Right? We're hearing an expression on the news, no justice, no peace. You see, the problem is, if there's justice, there's no peace on your own. But with Jesus, there's justice and peace. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is you want justice. Careful. Careful because there's justice coming. I, I came to make judgment and justice. And woo, do I wish that fire would light. That's what Jesus is saying. But, but, but careful what you're asking for. Because it's true, no justice no peace, but, but hang on, because with justice, you will not have peace. And look what Jesus says. This is, this is amazingly beautiful. Nahum says, justice, no peace, because who can stand before the fire of God? But Jesus was distressed. He says, how great is my distress. You ever think of Jesus as distressed? You ever think of Jesus with emotion? I, I don't think we do that well. Do you know in the Bible, nowhere does it say that Jesus laughed, but I'm going to guarantee that Jesus has the most robust belly laugh you will ever hear, and if you know him, you'll hear it one day. Why do I say that? Well, i got to do a little homiletical maneuvering here, but, but Scripture tells us there's a time for rejoicing and a, a time for mourning, a time for laughing. It actually uses the word laughing. We laugh in the sense of his image bearers. We just often laugh at the wrong thing. Jesus is a perfect man, had a perfect laugh. And I know he had perfect emotions because Jesus wept. Jesus got angry. Jesus felt distressed. Now, when you read the word distress, 
You read it in English and you'd miss this, but watch this. The word in the Greek is actually seen in Philippians 1.23. If you want to know the word in the Greek, it's synekomai. And you may know Philippians 1.23, Paul talks about he is hard-pressed, conflicted. Now think about that for a minute. Same word. Jesus is hard-pressed, conflicted, distressed. Why? You ever think of Jesus as an emotionless billionaire? What do I mean by that? Well, imagine you knew a billionaire and you needed some money and they cut you a check. It ain't no thing for them off a billion bucks, but it solves a big problem for us. What, what's it look like? Well, I was reading in the news that there was a, a NBA player, actually a couple of them, that left tips at restaurants, $1,000 tips on $100 bills. And in a sense, it's commendable. They're, they're helping a person out. But I did a little digging. On a $10 million annual income, a $1,000 tip is the equivalent of a $10 tip on a $100,000 income. You ever see a news story off of you? You made 100,000 bucks, a man leaves $10 tip at the diner. And people are like, whoa, $10. Or if we go with, with average income, person leaves $5 tip at the diner. Wow! Here's the point I'm getting at. First, it's commendable to leave a nice tip to encourage people. I, I, I don't mean to boast. I, got, I don't mean to, to be critical. I, I'm probably a little envious of that $10 million income because, you know, then they drive the Bentley. And, but, 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 but pray for me. Here's the point I'm after with that. Jesus didn't leave you a $10,000 tip on a $10 billion asset load. Jesus owns a cattle on a thousand hill. The world is his. But, but do you know what Jesus paid? It wasn't a tip. Turn over to Philippians for a minute, and I think you'll get there faster than Nahum. Matter of fact, you may get there faster than me as I'm floundering around here. If you go to, to the letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians, and you look at chapter 2, and you look at verse 8, it says Jesus left a $1,000 tip out of his $10 billion asset. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says, we'll start in 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. My friends, Jesus didn't leave a big tip. Jesus laid down his whole life. He paid the ultimate cost. He rescued us because of his immeasurable love for us. And he felt distress because he was about to enter the furnace of God's judgment and justice and wrath in the place of sinners. You know, you, you, we, we as a church, we're going through the book of Daniel and Bible study, and you know, there's, there's the, 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 the fiery furnace. You want to know how to blow that Bible study up? You missed the whole bullseye. You know what the bullseye of the fiery furnace is? I'm just thinking, Luke 13, anybody else going to a furnace? Luke 12, I mean, anyone else? going to be put in a furnace, maybe a furnace on, on a hill, maybe hung on a cross, taking a different type of fire. You know what the furnace in Daniel was talking about? Well, we'll get to that when we come back to Bible study face to face.
Jesus spent his whole life going to a fiery furnace which would consume him. And the reason it would consume him was because of his immeasurable love for his people. Now, can you chew on that for a minute? To the extent that we understand who Jesus truly is, emotion and all, attributes in totality, to the extent we understand that Jesus came to burn the whole thing down, to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. To the extent we understand the distress that he faced, not just when he prayed in the garden, but every moment of his life treading towards Calvary. To the extent we understand why. Now listen, he wasn't lonely. He wasn't sitting there going, I, I, I wish I had someone to hang out with. Maybe I'll go find some friends. And you want to see one messed up gospel distortion. Look, look at how the gospel is presented in our cultural context. Would you like to pray to invite Jesus into your heart? Stop. Stop. Don't wimpy him out. Don't remove his divinity. Don't lose his humanity. But Jesus isn't asking for an invitation into your heart. He said, I came to cast fire on the earth, but listen up, before I burn the sucker down, I offer forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption and sonship and intimacy with God himself. He's not saying, invite me into your heart. He's saying, behold God. Behold who you are before God. Look at the fire to come. Now hear the gospel offered. And the response is, Lord, why, why would you offer to save me? See, see, it's not about you choosing Jesus. It's marveling that Jesus chooses you. You don't invite Jesus into your heart. Now, now, now hear me close. You know why you don't invite him into your heart? Because your heart doesn't invite Jesus. You need a new heart. And he gives you a new heart. So don't give him the invitation. Hear the request, Lord, make me new. Do you, do you see the distinction there? He came to carry out justice, and we find we stand condemned. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and he offers to save us. Now, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be being saved by his life? Meaning this, and, and think about what we've been looking at in Luke 12, 1 forward. Remember, we're told by the Lord to, to look at the sparrows and the lilies and the grass, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if I came to take the wrath of God upon myself in my humanity so that you might be saved from it, why in God's green earth would I not provide for every need you have? Do you not understand how much I love you and how dear you are to me? Do you not understand who I am? You're missing the incredible love I have for you, the power I possess in your new identity in me. So when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, he's not saying it as a harsh taskmaster. He's saying it as a gentle, lowly, compassionate God who saved us from himself, by himself, and for himself. And he will lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Look at this um, 52. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, 
three against two and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and then mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. See, that, that, that's, Jesus, I guess, didn't know that that was a relational issue off the get-go, the mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, well, anyway, I'm kidding. Do you know what he's talking about here? He's saying if, if you want to trust in him, you've got to hate your mama, hate your daddy, cause, cause chaos in the house, you go to Thanksgiving, you make a mess, you yell, you start uncomfortable political conversations, and then you leave, right? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that in the most intimate human relationships, the relationships between parents and children and children and parents, the ones that are, are most close and most secure, that even those will be cut by the dividing line of the cross. You see that the cross is not a blunt object, it's a sharp object that divides all of humanity. And what happens here is Jesus is saying, verse 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And this is where it's so important to understand all of scripture together. Because yes, there is peace. Yes, he did come to bring peace. Yes, the gospel is a gospel of peace, Acts 10. But peace comes through division. Jesus came that we might have peace with God. And we are to live quiet and peaceable lives. In fact, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, fruit of the Spirit. We have peace with God so we might live at peace with others and proclaim peace to men. But peace comes through division. And what's a division? It's a transfer from one kingdom to another. And here's why there's division. It's not because you're a jerk and you got, you got issues. There's division because as God's people were of a different kingdom with a different master, with a different agenda and a different hope. And the promise from Jesus is, if the world hated me, the world will hate you. You don't go, listen, there are a lot of highly offensive Christian people. They, they're just annoying. And maybe you're thinking, like you, Pastor John, quiet. Um, don't say that about me. But you know what I mean. There, there are some highly messed up Christian folks like me. And, and we can be annoying and offensive with our own little quirks and nuances and issues. But my friends, this isn't the division that Jesus is talking about. This isn't the why people hate you that he's talking about. It's the gospel that he's talking about. And if we're living as Jesus calls us to live, and, and, and look, at, look at how it is back where we started. Turn from false teaching. That's going to irritate people because, you know, when, when, when someone has their truth and I have my truth, we need to just agree that we all have our own truth, right? Except when you say to someone, if my truth is true and your truth is true, when my truth calls your truth a lie, is it still true? You got to think about it for a minute. But it's frustrating when the philosophical arguments fall apart. When, when you watch a, a world fearing man and you attempt to live not to seek the approval of man, but to seek the approval of Christ, well, then man might not approve of you and that can cause division. When, when, when you stop loving material things, and you start pursuing God's kingdom and trusting in God's provision, well, people might think you're crazy and they might find it offensive. When, when light shines in darkness, people don't love the light and the darkness. They love the darkness. See, when, when, when we live following this, this guy named Jesus, I mean, think, think about the Christian message for a minute. Just, just think with me here for a minute. You and I worship an invisible guy. 
Fair? Has anyone ever seen Jesus face to face? You and I worship a guy who people say died, was buried, rose, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that one day he's going to come back, right? Now, when the world hears that, what does the world think? Y'all are some crazy folks. And, and if we're to go ahead and say, yeah, well, unless you turn to this guy you can't see with your own eyes and cry out to him for forgiveness, you're going you're gonna to burn in God's judgment and justice. What, what is the world thinking about us? And, and Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15 because it, it, it sounds like absolute craziness, and here's the fact. It is crazy, except for the fact Jesus really did rise. He really did ascend, and he really will come again. It's, it's not an evidentiary issue. If, if you want evidence, that, I mean, we've been working our way through Luke. The, the evidence that Jesus is exactly who he said he did, did exactly what he said he will do, and will do exactly what he says he will do, it's beyond any reasonable doubt true. The historical evidence, the the archaeological evidence, the, the biblical evidence, the, the, the support of, of documentation that we have, beyond any doubt that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. But the world thinks we're crazy. See, the, 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 you ever been called brainwashed as a Christian? Here's the kicker. You have been. You've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and your, your brain is washed to be able to understand truth. You see what I'm saying? A little flip there. We live in an upside-down kingdom where for us to, to live is to die, to be first is to be last. And here's what happens. The world pulls us to live according to their agenda in their kingdom by their master in their hope. Jesus calls us to the antithesis. What is the hope of a lost world? Turn on the news. We, we, we have a a global pandemic, and we're all going to die. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying there's not a global pandemic, and I'm not saying we're not all going to die. Not from the pandemic, I'm saying that, but we are all going to die. But here's not only the Christian hope, the Christian certainty. There's been a global pandemic since the Garden of Eden. It's called sin. Every single person born is born infected by sin, and the, the mortality rate of sin... It's not 1%, 2%, 3%. It's 100%. It is fatal to every person ever made. And we don't have to wait for a vaccine. We have a Savior named Jesus who came not just to offer hope, but to offer salvation. Jesus conquered death. We live in a world where, where it appears justice isn't carried out, and it might be from from your neighbor irritating you, or your siblings smacking you, or, or the authorities domineering over you, or institutional issues that have permeated the country for hundreds. Listen to me. In this world, you will never have perfect justice, but in the world to come, you will. And the reason you'll never have perfect justice in this world is because the world is broken. And Jesus didn't come to patch it up. He came to make all things new again. And the believer, we're able to love, we're able to forgive because we recognize who we were on our own. Born with a fatal disease called sin, living in open rebellion against God, but God in his graciousness forgave us and cured us and made us anew. And we still limp along and have plenty issues but we have a new kingdom and a new master and a new agenda and a new hope. And as we follow him, he will cause division in relationships that we have 
but we can bear under the burden of that because there is no division in one relationship that we have, and that's our relationship with Christ himself. So in the middle of this, this discourse on what it means to be his disciple, and I think too often we, we hear Jesus the wrong way. We hear, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we think, oh boy, I better get to keeping those commandments so that he thinks I love him. Stop, you missed it. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. And how do we know that he first loved us? Because we desire to love God. We see ourselves for who we are and God for who he is. And, and here's the question. What do you think is safer to trust in than God? Who is more powerful than God himself? Who, who is wiser, you or God? But now here's where you see the remnant of sin in our lives because we sometimes think that we are. And this is what we need to remember. And, and here's what's so frustrating about preaching. Well, it's not really frustrating. It's frustrating in the flesh because God works perfectly through his word. But we're in a small segment of the forest of, of this discourse. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Hang on to that for a minute. Because while Jesus may be invisible to us this moment, he will be made fully visible to us one day. You see, on this side we live by faith and not by sight, but one day we will live by sight. And one day he will appear before us face to face, and we will behold him not by faith, but by sight. But, but look at this, how great is my distress. Do you understand? Yeah. I, I think sometimes we can misperceive being a Christian. A plane's coming in for a landing. You know, some of you, your cup, cup of coffee's been empty for a while, right? I'm, and you're, you're hanging in there. You're not getting that second cup till we're done. I'll be quick here. I think sometimes we perceive God as, as standing on an arena floor with 100,000 people in the stands in the stadium around him. And we think, I may be in the arena, I may technically be a child of God, but I'm one of 100,000, or really more like one of 100 million. He's really not that attentive to me. Well, you, you miss the magnitude of God. Your relationship with God is far more like a father with a son in a one-on-one -on -one relationship where the father delights in that son and the son delights in that father and the attentiveness is far more profound and robust than any earthly father could have with their son. And you see, that's God. And the fact that Jesus was distressed shows us that, that there was cost, there was weight to what it took for him to save us. But while the fire of the furnace of the judgment of God may have killed Jesus in his humanity, it did not kill his love for us. Because he rose out of that furnace in a resurrection body conquering sin and death. He could have walked away in his distress. He could have not drank the cup but he chose to drink the cup. He chose to take the wrath of God in his immeasurable love for us. And as we see the love of God for us, as we see God for who he is, it becomes a delight to obey Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to be reminded of who he is. For why would you not want to obey a God who loves you as he does? And part of that is found in Jesus sending us out into a world to let the world know that 
he came to cast fire on the earth. And he will return to the earth one day in judgment. And there will be justice. And hang on to that as Christians, because as we understand his justice, as we understand judgment, we're free to forgive. That person who wronged you horribly, God will make it right. And the, 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 the wrath that will be inflicted upon them is far more substantial than anything you can muster up. And now think about that. Because they will get far worse than you could ever imagine they have coming. But the reason you can forgive them is because you and Christ didn't get what you deserve. In fact, Jesus took it for you. And the reason we struggle to forgive is because we don't understand the magnitude of grace which we have received. We don't understand the wisdom of God. But as we understand it more fully, then we are able to forgive. In fact, I think of Stephen in the book of Acts, as he was being stoned. Do you remember what he said? He yelled right as he was about to die, God's going to get you suckers. No. He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How did he pull that off? Why, why, why would he do that? You see, that, that was a new Stephen. That was a born a new Stephen. And that was a Stephen who God had worked mightily to conform into the image of Christ in Christ's humanity. And he was able to see himself not as a good guy who God saved, but a wicked man who was saved by grace through faith. So when he looked at those who stoned him, who hated him because they identified him with Jesus, he saw it as a privilege because he was Jesus's. My friends, don't go looking for division, please. Go looking for Christ. Rejoice in Christ. Walk with Christ. But remember, Jesus came in judgment. And the good news and the hope we have is that he who will judge the earth offers forgiveness. For those of you who don't know him, he will come again. And when he comes again, the offer of forgiveness is off the table. Or the day you die, the offer of forgiveness is off the table. But the beauty of the gospel isn't primarily about forgiveness. It's what we're forgiven and saved to. And that's a relationship with God of infinite joy, which we get to unpack from the day we are saved into eternity future. It's called eternal life. And that's what God gives us through Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to see you for who you truly are, to see ourselves for who we truly are in you or apart from you. And Lord, for those apart from you, I pray that they would be heavily burdened with the weight of sin, heavily impressed with the reality of the fact that you will bring justice, that you will bring judgment to the earth, and that on their own, apart from you, the verdict is in, it's guilty. And they will face the penalty for that guilt. And Lord, while people may mock and laugh or think it's silly, I pray, Holy Spirit, you would work mightily to let them know the silliness of their ways. For if we stop and reflect, your demand is that we all be perfect. And no one is perfect, no, not one. Lord, for those of us who are saved, I pray that you would remind us that we, on our own, are far more wicked and vile than we could ever have comprehended. Maybe not in relationship to other people, 
but before your purity and holiness. And that you would remind us, Lord, that you did not save us because of us meriting it, but rather you saved us despite us meriting nothing but your wrath. And you did it at great cost to yourself, even through distress. But you did it because you chose us before the foundation of the earth. Lord, help us marvel at that. Help us marvel at the reality of who you are and who we are as children of God and that we have peace with God because, Lord, there is peace through you. There is peace through judgment. And it is peace found when you take the judgment we deserve and place your righteousness upon us. Lord, help us to understand these truths so we might go into a world and proclaim these truths. Help us to go out into a world fearful of sickness and pandemic and point them out to the fact that there is a greater pandemic and a perfect cure. And there is a future where there will be no more sickness or pain or suffering. Help us to go out into a world where there's anger and vitriol and, and, and open rebellion and sedition and, and rioting and protesting in an appropriate manner because justice has not been had. And let us proclaim that justice will be done one day. But before we worry about justice being carried out on others, may we be highly attentive to the fact that justice will be carried out either on us or on Christ in our place. And then as God's people going out and calling people to justice and living as light and salt in a lost and unjust world. Lord Jesus, help us, for we are a hot mess. But you are a mighty Savior who is strong. Help us to rest in your strength and rejoice in who you are and who we are in you by grace through faith. In your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We will close with a song and a benediction.